Amen. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 19. The Gospel of John chapter 19. We are going to finish this chapter this morning, which will get us perfectly set up for Easter Sunday. Last week we looked at the fulfillment of prophecy as Jesus was speaking the words, those last four sayings from the cross, all four sayings of the last four that he spoke, of the seven total, all four were direct quotations from the Old Testament. John is trying to show us over and over and over again that in the darkest moments of all of human history, God is still absolutely in control. He's still absolutely working. He's sovereign and his plans cannot be thwarted. And we come to the end of this section where Jesus has died. He has given up his spirit and he is going to be taken off the cross. He's going to be buried. And even in these verses, we have to ask John as he's writing, where is the glory of Jesus on display? And it's here. It's here. So as we read and as we pray and ask God's blessing upon our time this morning, I want us to read with the lenses of the glory of God, that even in the darkest moments, even when it seemed like the God of the universe had lost, he is in absolute control. Let's read in verse 31 all the way down to verse 42. John chapter 19, verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and it was about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Father, we come to the end of this chapter. We come to the end of the brutality that we've seen on display as the Son of God is murdered on a cross. And all throughout our time together, we have seen the glory of Jesus. Even when it seems like he is completely out of control, John keeps reminding us, no, he's completely in control. 
And these verses would prove the exact same truth to us yet again. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to feel the weight of your sovereignty, that there is not one maverick molecule that can do whatever it wants to do apart from your knowledge. Your timing is always perfect. You're never late. You're hardly ever early. You work for our good and for your glory. And yet we would think that if you were working for our good, everything would feel good. Everything would come, come across as lovely, as beautiful, and as happy. But we're told from these verses this morning that your sovereign care over us allows difficulties, allows trials, allows even the death of the Son of God for the purpose of an even greater joy than we could possibly imagine. Yes, you are working for our good, Romans 8.28. You are working for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. But we need to define what that good is. And God, we want to see your goodness working in us and through us, through your eyes. Even as we studied through the Upper Room Discourse in John 15, where Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches and your father is the vine dresser and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, he cuts it. That's painful. But God, you are never closer to us in that moment of pruning. So God, I pray that we would feel the weight of your sovereign control. I pray that we would feel the weight of prophecies that just, there's no way these could be fulfilled except through you making them happen. We would see your grace on display as Jesus, the promised and prophesied Messiah, fulfills every last detail, fulfilling the Father's work. So Holy Spirit, be our guide this morning. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These verses we can split up just into two main parts. We have two prophecies that are being fulfilled, and then we have two Pharisees that are going to do some amazing things. So two prophecies, two Pharisees. Let's start with the two prophecies in verses 31 through 37. Verse 31, the two prophecies, we'll see them at the very end, but it begins by John saying, the Jews, because it was the day of preparation... That's the day of preparation for the Sabbath, so it is Friday, and it's, it's the preparation for the Sabbath of a high holy day, a high holy week. It's the Sabbath of the Passover week, and that's why John's going to tell us that this Sabbath, end of verse 31, is a high day. It's a very important Sabbath. It's a Sabbath just like every other Sabbath, but it's the Sabbath of the Passover week. So this is a very high holy day. And the Jews don't want the bodies to remain on the cross during the Sabbath. Now, they might be taking this from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, which says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, you shall hang him on a tree, and his corpse shall not hang on the tree all night, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so, you, so that you will not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives to you as an inheritance. So maybe they're thinking in those terms, there's a high holy day coming up. We don't want to have somebody that would be defiling our high holy day. So we need to take the robbers and take Jesus off of the crosses and bury their bodies. Again, we see the irony of these Jewish people that they would say, we need to keep that law, right? We need to keep the law in Deuteronomy 21. 
Uh, but we're fine breaking all the other laws that we've broken up until this point. We've had uh, illegal trials. We've done illegal things. This reminds us even of when they went before Pilate. Do you remember they walked into his, uh, the, the place where he was, the Gentile uh, area, and they would not take a step into his court because they didn't want to defile themselves. The irony, the hypocrisy, the religious hypocrisy on display with these Jewish leaders. They're in a hurry. But even in their hurry, get this, they're hurrying because of their hypocrisy. And God's going to use their hypocritical hurrying to accomplish his purposes. Because God needs to get Jesus' body into a tomb on Friday because Jesus needs to be in a tomb for three days. He said he was going to be in the grave for three days. And in a Jewish mindset, any part of a day is a day. Uh, there's a Jewish expression that any part of a yom is a yom. A yom is a day in Hebrew, any part of a day. So if it's uh, 11.50 on Friday night, uh, that's still Friday. Um, Jesus has to be buried some portion of Friday, and he will rise on Sunday morning. So he's going to be in the ground for three days. So God the Father is going to use the Jewish hypocritical hurrying to get his purposes accomplished, to get Jesus in the grave on Friday. So what do they ask for? They want their bodies to come off the cross, so they need to die first. So they go to Pilate and they ask that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. That word broken in the Greek is to shatter. They would go with just a sledgehammer and, and break, shatter the kneecaps, shatter the femurs, so that the, the criminals that were on the crosses would not be able to push themselves up uh, to be able to take breath. Uh, they need to take a breath to be able to keep on living. And if they are unable to push themselves up, then they will just hang and their diaphragm will be folding in over itself. They will not be able to take a breath and they will die of asphyxiation. So they want to break the legs so that they will hurry the death process. So verse 32, the soldiers come and they break the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified. But when they come to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Using the Synoptic Gospels, we see that they go back to Pilate and they say, he's already dead. We didn't have to break his legs. And Pilate goes, really? He's already dead? How do you know? And they're going to say, well, we checked. We, we thrust a spear into his side. But Pilate is confused to hear that Jesus had already died. Why? Because he only died, uh, he died in only six hours. Usually it would take two to three days for a criminal to die on a cross. Jesus is going to die in six hours. Josephus gives us record of a man taking eight days to die on a cross. But Jesus is going to die in six hours. So they come to Jesus' body. They see he's already dead. Verse 34, so one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. His blood had not been pumping for a little bit. Uh, blood and water had separated. Um, the spear thrust into his side had punctured his heart. Some people ask the question, how did Jesus actually die? How did he actually die? We don't know. Maybe it was asphyxiation. Maybe it was uh, just loss of blood. We don't know. But I wonder. Remember Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me gall to drink because I was thirsty. It was a, a prophetic fulfillment uh, when Jesus cried out, I am thirsty. The verse right before that says, because of the reproach that was given to me, my heart was broken. I wonder if his heart literally ruptured. 
That's a very difficult thing for heart to do, for the heart muscle to just rupture. But just think about what our Savior has gone through. Think about when you are standing at the edge of a cliff and your heart starts to pound a little bit, right? Think of when you are, uh, there's a jump scare in a movie and your heart starts to pound a little bit. We get, in those moments of being frightened and startled, our hearts start to run a million miles an hour and we're, we're a little bit frightened and our hearts start to beat very quickly. What has our Savior gone through? He has literally stood at the edge of the precipice of hell itself, has stared into it, and the Father said, you need to go into it. And he has experienced the wrath of God, the full, furious, righteous wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. So I think it would be safe to say that his heart was beating incredibly fast as he stares into what would be the most frightening thing to ever experience. So he is dead. And they don't have to break his legs. They pierce his side to check to see if he's dead. And verse 35, there is a man who has seen and has testified. This is John, the gospel writer. He was there. He's an eyewitness. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. He knows this isn't made up. He saw it. It's documented. You could see it. And he's writing these things. He's telling us these things so that you may believe. But then he connects it in verse 36 with the word for. So what is John going to tell us? John's going to say, I saw the way our Savior died. I saw what happened with my own eyes. It's a true testimony. And the testimony that I offer to you of how Jesus died, I want you to take and I want you to believe because of what happened. And then he's going to say, because... The way Jesus died fulfilled scripture. So what John is telling us is the way Jesus died is so amazing that as you hear what happened and how prophecy was fulfilled, there's no way that you can think this happened by accident. You can see it there in verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. So I want you to believe, end of verse 35, because something amazing happened when Jesus died. So here are two prophecies. We have two prophecies, verse 36 and 37. Verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, and not a bone of him shall be broken. That's from Psalm 34, verse 20. And verse 37, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. That's from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Two prophecies. These are just two of, of 30. There's about 30 prophecies that were filled, fulfilled by Jesus in his death on the cross. About 30 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus during his death. We've seen a couple of them. Uh, casting lots and dividing the garments in Psalm 22. Numbered with the transgressors in Isaiah 53. Uh, wagging heads in, in mockery, Psalm 22. Uh, I'm thirsty, Psalm 69. No bones are broken at Psalm 34. He was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was, uh, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, Zechariah chapter 12. He's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. That's Isaiah 53. There's uh, over 30 prophecies that Jesus fulfills on the cross in his dying. You remember there's over 330 prophecies that Jesus fulfills as Messiah, but 30 being fulfilled at the cross. And John picks out these two. He gives us just two, and he says, look at how amazing Jesus had to be to fulfill these two prophecies. What are the two prophecies? The first, in Psalm 34, verse 20, not a bone will be broken. Not a bone will be broken. This is really a fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12 when 
the Passover lamb was, you were not allowed to break the Passover lamb's bones. You had to um, take them out of joint, but you weren't allowed to break their bones. So Jesus, our Passover lamb, died before his bones had to be broken. You say, well, okay, you experienced the wrath of God, that's an easy thing. You die before uh, they come to break their bones. But if Jesus had died too quickly, then there would be no need for a guard to come by and thrust a spear into his side to check. Nobody would be asking, are we sure he's dead? Everybody would say, yeah, he died about five hours ago. So Jesus dies perfectly in the right moment, not too early so that they don't have to thrust the spear in his side, but not too late that they have to break his legs. Verse 37, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. That's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So Jesus, knowing the fact that he has to die in a perfect window of time, John chapter 10, verse 18, he had already explained, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I lay it down at the perfect moment. And so here, in the darkest moment of all of human history, when it seems like God is completely out of control, God's actually planning, purposing, and in complete control, even to the precise second of Jesus' death, the very moment of his death. If it had been a little bit later, they would have had to break his legs. A little bit earlier, and they wouldn't have had to pierce his side but the perfect amount of time, and Jesus fulfills both of these prophecies. How could this be if it weren't for the fact that he truly is who he claimed to be? So John says, I'm telling you this so that you would believe. I'm telling you this so that you would see this is impossible to be fulfilled just by happenstance. There's no way that this just happens to to work this way. No, Jesus was in complete control. He made it happen. So we see two prophecies, but we also see two Pharisees. This is in verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So we see Joseph of Arimathea. We're also going to meet Nicodemus. And it's very interesting for all of the incredibly bad press that the Pharisees get, and rightfully so. They get terrible press in the Bible. But we need to remember that the only two men with the courage to claim the body of Jesus were two Pharisees. Two Pharisees come before Pilate, come before the Jewish leaders, talk to them, and they ask for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea is the first one. He's a disciple of Jesus, John tells us in verse 38, but he's a secret disciple because he's afraid of the Jews. Um, the Synoptic Gospels tell us he is a part of the Sanhedrin. Um, either he was on the, the Sanhedrin, the, the member, one of the members of the 70 people that were the leaders, the Supreme Court, if you will, of Israel. Either he was on that panel when Jesus was being um, betrayed and all the, the false accusations and the false witnesses were um, leveling their accusations against him. And he did not speak up, or or maybe he spoke up and he said, hang on, I shouldn't be a part of this. Or maybe he wasn't there at all, but somehow he's a part of the Pharisees. But in secret, he's a follower of Jesus. But what does he do here? He goes to Pilate to ask permission to take away Jesus' body. Mark tells us he goes boldly before 
Pilate. This was a courageous thing for Joseph to do. What would normally happen to a crucified criminal? What normally would happen is either they would just leave him on the cross and the body would be eaten by animals, or they would take the body off and just throw it into a dump, into a pile. And Joseph says, no way is that happening to my Savior. No way is that happening to my Savior. So he asks for the body, and Pilate grants him permission, which is amazing because Pilate is going to not grant a lot of the permission, or not grant permission to a lot of the requests that the Israelites are asking. The Jewish leaders are infuriating Pilate. Pilate's going to say, stop, enough, I'm done. But here, Pilate grants the request. Now, this is another place where prophecy is being fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9 says that Jesus, the Messiah, will be with a rich man in his death. He'll be buried with a rich man in his death. How will that happen? How will that happen? Well, this is how it's happening. 750 years earlier, Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah dies, he's going to die. There's two prophecies in Isaiah 53 that just it seems like there's no way they could ever fit. The first is he's going to die between transgressors, between thieves. He's going to die numbered with the transgressors. So this man is going to be deemed a criminal. Well, what's going to happen to criminals' bodies when they die? Nothing extravagant. But when he dies, he will be buried in the tomb of a rich man. He'll be assigned the grave with a rich man. How could those both work? This is exactly how they're both working. Isaiah, 750 years earlier to this moment, knows exactly what's going to happen because God is prophesying exactly how Messiah is going to die. Matthew tells us that Joseph of Arimathea is a very wealthy man. And so Joseph is the man who's going to fulfill this prophecy. He's a Pharisee. He's a secret disciple. But here, even though he's a coward, he becomes a heroic fulfiller of prophecy. So he asks for the body, and Pilate grants permission. So he came and he took away his body. Verse 39, we meet the second Pharisee, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night. So we know this man from John chapter 3. This was the um, again, secret disciple. He was unsure in John 3. Who are you? I come on behalf of the Jewish leaders, but I'm really asking for my own benefit. I don't understand who you are, what's going on. We know you're at least a man sent by God, but you claim to be more than that. Who are you? And then John 7, we meet him again in John 7 when all of the Jewish leaders are saying, we should just take him and kill him. And he says, wait, I think he should at least stand trial. He should at least stand trial because if he's innocent, then he should be able to speak up. We don't want to kill an innocent man. We've seen Nicodemus twice in John's gospel. And he comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and of aloes. Again, that myrrh brings us all the way back to when Jesus was born and the gifts of the wise men. It was a gift that was just foreshadowing the death that the Messiah was going to die. That he came, he was born for the purpose of dying. So he comes, he brings this mixture of spices, myrrh, aloes. My Bible says it was about 100 pounds weight. Technically, it's actually 75 pounds, the 100. Um, literally, in the Greek, it's 100 litras. Um, some people just say, well, litras close to a pound, so it's 100 pounds. It's 75 pounds. Some of your translations might even say 65. Here's the bottom line. It doesn't really matter. What we know is, number one, it's a whole lot of spices. It's a lot. And we know that because we know how many, uh, the, the amount of spices that were given to kings for the purpose of their burial, it was over 50 pounds. So Nicodemus brings to anoint the body of Jesus an amount that is befitting a king. 
But the second thing that we need to see is it was such a large amount that there's no way that somebody could survive being wrapped in these things for three days. You guys have heard some of the the attempts that people would make to say, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And one of the attempts is, well, he fainted on the cross. He fainted on the cross. He was going through a lot. It's a big ordeal. A lot of blood loss. He just fainted. Well, I'm not okay with that for a number of reasons, but here's one of the main ones. If he fainted, then he would have been killed by being suffocated in about 75 pounds of spices over his face and his body. There's no way he would have been able to survive that. We're going to talk about the other reasons why it's impossible that Jesus fainted on the cross. He was actually verifiably dead. But Nicodemus comes and he says, I want to worship my Lord. I don't want him to be buried like a common man. I want him to be buried like a king. So they come and they take his body down off of the cross. They wrap it as was the custom of the Jews. They would wrap arms, legs, body, head. These two men who had kept themselves hidden but here they show themselves. Why? What's changed? What's changed? At first, they were incredibly timid, spiritually so. They just, I don't want to be a part of this. I'm kind of scared. That's usually because you're trying to preserve some reputation. It's self-preservation. We are spiritually timid because we want to work on our self-preservation. We want to make sure that we can preserve ourselves. Maybe even today, as you think about going into the neighborhood, you're a little spiritually timid because you want to preserve some uh, level of sophistication or, you know, I, I'm, I'm above that. I don't want somebody getting mad at me or yelling at me or slamming a door in my face. I don't want that to happen. Spiritual timidity is usually the consequence of self-preservation, just a commitment to I want to preserve myself. But here, Joseph and Nicodemus can't remain silent. Why? This is the interesting thing about the cross. I can't tell you what changed. I can't tell you why something changed, but I can tell you that something changed. I don't know how the cross affected them this way, that all of a sudden they had the courage to speak and to move forward and to step outside their comfort zone in this, but all I know is that it does work. I don't know how the cross works like that, but I know that it works. And we have two amazing examples of people who, hanging out in the shadows, when they see their Savior die, say, that's it, I'm stepping forward. And so they walk forward and they talk to Pilate. They wear whatever criticism, whatever sarcastic mocking, whatever would come at them, they're fine with it. Because they want to worship their Savior. So, verse 40, they take the body, they bind, they bind it in linen wrappings with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. They would wrap, they'd put spicings, kind of like a, a putty, a goop. They'd wrap, they'd put spice, they'd wrap, they'd put spices, they'd wrap, they'd put spices. Just layers upon layers, usually between three and five, but if you're royalty, five and seven layers. Now, verse 41, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb 
in which no one had yet been laid. It's amazing that there's a garden right next to where Jesus was crucified. And again, in beautiful fulfillments of what Jesus had said, I'm going to be in the ground for three days before I rise. So it's, it's almost sundown on Friday, and they better get him into the ground. And if they have to take a long trip to go over to where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is, they're not going to make it in time. But Joseph of Arimathea's tomb just so happens to be right next to where Jesus was crucified. Who picked where Jesus was going to be crucified? It was Rome. Centuries earlier, well, this looks like a good place. It's right next to the, the roads, uh, the, the uh, main entryway into Jerusalem. We want it right next to a big gate, a big opening where a lot of people are going to see him. Well, who picked where that road was going to be? That's a long time ago. That's David. And even before that, people that owned that territory said, well, this is a great entrance. As we go up this hill, this is a great place. And there happens to be a tomb right there. God orchestrated and designed every single aspect of this so that in the place where he's crucified, there's a a tomb. John tells us it's a new tomb. Why do we need to know that it's new? Uh, We need to know for two reasons. Number one, you need to know what tomb Jesus is buried in so that when the tomb is empty, you can say, well, I knew this, this is the tomb. It has to be the tomb because it's a new tomb. Nobody had been buried here before. If this is a common tomb where many people had been buried, then it'd be easy to say, well, he's gone, but there's all these other people here. Well, but his body's the one that's gone. How do you know? But if his is the only body that's in that tomb, then if there's no body in the tomb, he's gone. There's no way that you can get around that. But second, remember we studied, um, or we, we shared with the kids this morning, uh, the Palm Sunday, um, the entrance into Jerusalem. Do you remember specifically what we're told in the Synoptic Gospels? What did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? Do you remember? The specific fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. It wasn't just a donkey. What kind of a donkey was it? It was a colt. It was a baby donkey. And specifically, Zechariah tells us, and the Synoptic Gospels do as well, that this was a baby donkey that had never been ridden. This is is a special donkey. This is a special occasion. The king of the universe is going to ride upon a special donkey fit for this occasion. It's new. It had never been used. Same thing here. New, never been used, fit for a king. So he's buried in this garden tomb. It's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's important to know because John has been giving us biographical data on both of these men. We know who Nicodemus is. John tells us he was the guy who came by night at uh, John 3 to talk to Jesus. Um, We have Joseph of Arimathea. Why are we told it's Joseph of Arimathea? Why do we have of Arimathea? Well, Joseph is a decently common name. But if you go through all of the Sanhedrin, if you have seven Josephs, you probably only have one who's Joseph from Arimathea. And you can go to Arimathea and you can say, do you know where Joseph lives? The Joseph who is from Arimathea, who is a part of the Sanhedrin, do you know where he is? You can go check for yourself. John is testifying of the truth and he wants to make sure that he gives you as much corroborating evidence as possible to say there's no way this is made up. This is all true. So, therefore, verse 42, because of the Jewish day, 
of preparation. Since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Such mundane details, such mundane moments to just in, in a tomb that was close by, and it's in the garden, it's new. John is telling us many things. Again, a big picture of God's sovereignty in life's most mundane moments, in things where we see absolutely no significance or that there's no way that God's watching or caring or purposing or planning. In every little detail, he is working. In every single moment, he's working. He's working for your good. He's working for his glory. If you're a believer here this morning, he's working every single mundane moment in your life for his good. Every beautiful moment, every difficult moment, every trial, every blessing. God's using every single moment, even the most um, obscure details, as where a garden would be, what time of day it is. It all matters to God, and God's using all of it for your good and for his glory. But as we wrap up this chapter and as we wrap up this section, we get the blessing next week of celebrating Jesus is alive. Uh, You don't have to read ahead. I mean, you know what's coming. And this is the most exciting day in all of human history. This is the most exciting day for a believer. This is the reason we have to celebrate. If Jesus simply died and was buried and did not rise from the dead, we have no hope. 1 Corinthians 15. We have all people are most to be pitied. So next week is going to be a celebration in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 of the resurrection of our Savior. But as we finish out this section dealing with the narrative of Jesus' death and his burial, I want to just make three concluding observations from, from our time. It's been about two months that we spent on the cross in the Gospels. Number one. As we wrap all this up, number one, Jesus died an actual and indisputable death. He died an actual and indisputable death. Again, people that say Jesus did not rise from the dead, one of the first places they go is, well, he never died. If you don't die, you can't rise. He never really died. He just woke up in the tomb, but he never actually died. That's impossible on a number of accounts, but let me give you a couple of them. Number one, Romans always made sure that crucifixion was four things. Cruel, lingering, public, and verifiable. Cruel, it was a cruel death. You know that. We've talked about that. It was lingering. It went on for days, two to three days on average. At at most, we have from Josephus, eight days. It was public. It was on the roadside. It was on the main highways. Think about the people that, um, that you would come into contact with that are asking for money. Where do they typically stand when they're asking for money with a sign? They typically stand where uh, the, the exit of a freeway, where there's going to be a lot of traffic happening. That's the exact same thing that the Romans are trying to do. They want to make sure this is public because the whole point of crucifixion is not just about executing the seditionist. It's about destroying the sedition. If anybody wants to try and fight against Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. They're just using people as billboards. So it's cruel, it's lingering, it's public, and it has to be verifiable. Because if it's not verifiable, just think about if you are a part of a a rebellion, you're a part of a sedition, you're a part of wanting to overthrow Rome, and your leader is taken and captured and hung on a cross. If there's any way that you can say, He's not dead. 
He's not dead. He's alive and he's going to lead us to victory. You'll find that way. So what did the Romans do? They made sure that this death, there's no way that you could possibly say he's not dead. There's no way. It's an object lesson. They would place the victim high enough that you could see them over everyone's head, but low enough that the dogs could still nibble at their flesh. And since Jesus was clearly not a seditionist, he had been proven not to be by Pilate, he's still dying that certifiable, verifiable death of a seditionist. Even though he's not, clearly he's not, he's dying a death that could not be botched. Let's say it that way. Stoning could be botched. You could botch a stoning, right? Acts chapter 14. They thought that they killed Paul. They didn't. But there's no way that somebody's going to be put on a cross and not die. Josephus tells us that the Roman uh, squad, four people and a centurion over them, those four soldiers that were in charge of crucifying victims, if there was any life left in the body as you took it off, Josephus tells us of one account where you'd put the body on the ground and, and the body had air in its lungs and it just kind of went, those four soldiers were killed. They were crucified. They were taken by the centurion. Their job was to make sure that these people were certifiable, verifiably dead. There was no way that you can say that they're alive. So did Jesus faint on the cross? Well, no, because crucifixion is a form of execution for that very purpose. There's no way that they get off of the cross alive. Did he faint on the cross? No. Another reason is because Joseph of Arimathea is going to entomb him. Joseph loves Jesus. If Joseph thinks that Jesus is alive, that there's any hope that he's alive, of course he's going to try and revive him. But Joseph entombs him. He also puts 75 pounds of spices over him. He buries him. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, I delivered to you what was of first importance to me? And he gives us the gospel. And what does he say? That Jesus was crucified. He was killed and he was buried. Paul includes his burial in the gospel presentation. Because you don't bury somebody who's not dead. He's dead. He's truly dead. And then when he comes back from the dead, there's no way that you can dispute that. As we've gone through these two months of looking at the death of our Savior, we see that Jesus died a death that cannot be challenged. Therefore, when he rises from the dead, it's the greatest act in all of human history, and it cannot be challenged either. And we get to celebrate that next week. And I cannot wait to do that. Number two, the second concluding truth in all of these months that we've been together. Number one was that Jesus died a, a, an actual indisputable death. Number two, Jesus' body was buried in an actual indisputable tomb. His body was buried in an actual real location, and its location is indisputable. Look at even just in the Gospel of John. We are told it's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Nicodemus was there. We have a number of women. We have John. We have Roman guards that are going to show up. There's going to be a seal placed there. There's no way they got the wrong tomb. So when the women are going to come on Sunday morning and they're going to show up at the tomb, if they show up at a tomb where there's multiple bodies in the tomb, or they show up at a tomb where there's a stone that doesn't have a Roman seal on it, or they show up at a tomb where there aren't Roman soldiers, there's so many um, variables here that they know are not possible because they saw it. It was an actual indisputable location. 
John tells us it's in a garden. It's near Golgotha. And they all saw where it was. Again, that's another place where if you want to deny the resurrection, you would say, okay, number one, Jesus didn't actually die. No, he did. There's no way that you can get around that. Okay, fine. Number two, the women went to the wrong tomb. I'm fine even saying that they did at the beginning, but somebody's going to go to the right tomb at the end. Even in all their despair and depression, which we're going to look at, it didn't happen, but even in all their despair and depression, even if they went to the wrong tomb, they're going to go and they're going to get John and Peter and they're going to say, disciples, the body's gone and John and Peter would know where to go and they, they wouldn't go to the wrong tomb. And even if they do, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go to the wrong tomb, right? They, they want to produce a body and they go looking and they say, well, we have to make something up. Remember we talked about that a couple of Easter's ago. We have to make something up. They bribed the Roman guards. We cannot produce a body. The body's gone. We were at the right tomb. They would have easily, they would have loved the wrong tomb theory, right? That would have been their greatest theory. Oh, they, they, they went to the wrong tomb. But you can go to that tomb. You could go there. Everybody knew where it was. So Jesus was buried in an actual indisputable tomb. Therefore, just we haven't even gotten to the resurrection, and the resurrection is going to be God's exclamation point on all of this. But just in these last couple months, because we have seen Jesus actually died an indisputable, real death, and he was buried in an actual indisputable tomb. Number three, the, the, the concluding fact to me is that we hold to an actual indisputable faith. We hold to a real, actual, indisputable faith. We're not believing things that have been made up. That's why John gives us Joseph of Arimathea. If John wanted to make this up, he would have said, yeah, that guy named Joseph. It's like saying, yeah, that guy named Bob Smith. Go find him. He knows. Like, how many Bob Smiths are there? No, no, it's the Joseph from Arimathea. He's the guy that was a Sanhedrin. He's one of the 70 elders. He was in private, a believer. So we really have two guys. We have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two Pharisees that did not want Jesus to die. That's, you can go find them. Go ask them yourselves. That's what John's telling his readers to do. So we hold to an actual indisputable faith. And we haven't even gotten to the resurrection. And the resurrection is going to prove that all the more. This is grounded in history. Even as we prepare to go out to invite our neighbors, to invite our community to come to church, sometimes they might look at you and say, you believe that? That's a fairy tale, right? Like, I don't believe in Jesus because I don't believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. And I understand where they're coming from, but that's why we go through the Bible very carefully, very slowly at times, so that we can realize the reality of the facts of this book. This book is grounded in history. Just think about how this book is laid out. From Genesis to Nehemiah, it's historical narrative. It's just history. And then the Gospels to Acts, just history. So half of your Bible is historical narrative. It's just a history lesson. It's history. Half of your Bible is historical narrative. Why is this important? If God is going to, if we're going to understand who God is, if we're going to figure out the truth of who God is, how are we going to figure that out? Are we going to discover it? We can't. We are finite minds trying to understand an infinite mind. We are material trying to understand the immaterial. There's no way that we could figure God out on our own. So the only way that we can understand God's truth is if God reveals himself to us. 
God has to do the revealing, and praise the Lord, he did. He has revealed himself to us. And he reveals himself, specifically in the Bible, in two main ways. The first is called event revelation. Um, really awesome things happen. Events happen. The parting of the Red Sea, that's event revelation. There's a God, trust the God that's working on your behalf, Israel, who lets you go out of Egypt and frees you through the Red Sea. Event revelation. We have seen a number of aspects, even in the Gospel of John, of just simply event revelation. It's, uh, my professor used to say it's God perpendicularizing himself. He, he jumps right into human history and says, I'm here, I'm real. There's no way you can discredit the fact that I'm real. So we have event revelation. And then we have word revelation. Event revelation, God's just screaming out through what he's doing, I'm here. And then we have word revelation where God explains who he is, where God explains what he's doing, where God explains why he's doing what he's doing. Word revelation in the Bible is, in the Old Testament, it's prophets. Thus saith the Lord, you want to know about God? Let me tell you about him. In the New Testament, it's apostles. And they primarily record the events. The event revelation is recorded, and the word revelation interprets what that event means. We have that in the New Testament. Think about the Gospel of Matthew. How well would you understand the Gospel if you had the Gospel of Matthew, but you didn't have the book of Romans? We would know it. But event revelation only goes so far. Word revelation interprets. Word revelation gives us an understanding of God's revealing himself in the events. Why do I say this? Because up until this point, we as a church family have been going through the Gospel of John seeing the event revelation of the crucifixion. We've been seeing the narrative. This is historically accurate. And that's why I say, Concluding fact number three, we hold to an actual indisputable faith. You can't argue against what's happening. But what we haven't done in great detail is look at the word revelation of the event of the crucifixion. And we're going to do that on Good Friday. We've, we've set the stage for our Good Friday service. We spent two months at Calvary. And we have been looking at the narrative, the event revelation of God perpendicularizing himself into human history, working earthquakes, uh, veil torn into all these different things. But on Good Friday, we're, we're going to kind of do what Jesus did with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they said, we, we thought that this man was the Messiah, but he died. Now we don't know what to do. And he goes back and takes the event revelation and the word revelation and explains them. We've talked about the cross, and we have talked about why the cross. But I just want to invite you, come on Good Friday, to meditate on God's word revelation for why he crushed his son. Come ready to see the love that God has for you, such that he would place his son on a cross to give you nothing but love, grace, kindness, and pardon. And I pray that this week leading up to Good Friday would be a week where we can just meditate on the event revelation to prepare us for the word revelation as we ask God, why did you let this happen? Why did you plan it? We believe it. It's clear. And we want to know why. So let's prepare our hearts even now as we glory 
in the fact that our faith is indisputable, it's real, it's historically accurate, it's grounded in truth and fact, and we'll come back together on Good Friday and glory in our Redeemer all the more as we see the, the foundation of everything that we've been studying. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the conviction that we get just seeing these two prophecies and these two Pharisees, two prophecies that there's no way that these are fulfilled except for you, Jesus, our Savior, purposing when you would die. Couldn't die too early or else they'd have to come and they'd have to break your legs, but you couldn't die too late or else they wouldn't need to thrust a spear in your side. You died exactly when you needed to and you gave up your spirit in full control and you are in control today. If you are in that much control in the moment of your death, how much more so will you be in control of every single aspect of our lives as you reign in newness of life in heaven from God's throne? And then we have our Pharisees. God, what an encouragement to our hearts. Maybe we're spiritually timid, but we see Nicodemus, we see Joseph of Arimathea, we see them not caring at all what people think of them anymore. No more self-preservation. I love my Savior, and I don't care what it costs me. I don't care who knows it. I want to worship Him. God, we get the opportunity to do that every day, but specifically this day. What a blessing to go out into the community and just tell them about Jesus. Two prophecies, two Pharisees. And God, what we want to do now is exactly what the words of this song say. We want to glory. We want to savor in our Redeemer. May we glory in our Redeemer this day. May we glory in our Redeemer all throughout this week leading up to Good Friday. And may we glory in our Redeemer from now until eternity when we face to face get to see him, savor him, and glory in everlasting joy with our Savior and Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.